seated. Well, good morning. As always, it is a great privilege to have this opportunity to worship our God together and to hear from our God this morning through the preaching of the Word. Well, in God's providence today, uh, our catechism question spoke about how it was especially in the preaching of the Word that God was pleased to communicate the blessings of salvation to His people both initially in conversion, but also in our ongoing sanctification. And so in other words, the preaching of the Word is the chief means whereby Christ mediates to us covenant blessings. And so what this means, brothers and sisters, is that when the Word of God is rightly preached, it comes to the people as just that, as the very Word of God. And what I mean by that is this. It's, it's not just when the preacher reads the Word that we hear God speaking to us. Now we would all agree that if, if I read aloud directly from the Scriptures that you would be hearing directly from God, right? You would be hearing God's Word. But remember our catechism question. It said, it's not just the reading of the word, but especially the preaching of the word that God uses to communicate to his people. And so what that means is that when the preacher is expounding upon the word and applying those truths to your hearts, that this is to be received, the preaching is to be received as not just the words of men, but as the word of God. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And so if this be true, and it is, then what we are presently engaged in, in the preaching of the word in this moment, is something that really is more glorious than what we can truly understand. When the people of God gather together for corporate worship, God himself dwells in our midst and he speaks to us through all the means of grace, but especially through the preaching of the word. And so if God is the one speaking, then the preaching of the word comes with the very authority of God himself. And there's only one proper response when the sovereign Lord speaks. We are to listen intently. We are to believe what is said and we are to render obedience motivated by love. That's the only proper response when God speaks. And we have stated that when the word of God is preached rightly, God is speaking, not just a man. And so with the sacred weight of what we are engaging in, I hope firmly settled upon your hearts and minds, let us pause and ask God to speak to us through the preaching of the word. Our Father and our most gracious God, our God who is truly the thrice holy God, the God who is sovereign above all, the God who has all power and all wisdom. Lord, impress upon our hearts and minds at this very moment that you are in this room, that we are dwelling in your presence, and help us to understand that what we're engaging in right now in the preaching of the word is nothing less than you speaking to us. And so my prayer is that as I preach that I would disappear 
and that Christ and Christ alone would be seen and heard and that we would render obedience and love to Christ, that our hearts would be, would be melted in thanksgiving and that our wills would be resolved to, to honor and glorify Him in all that we do. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? I ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be picking back up in our series through the book of Ephesians. And it's been a couple of months since the last time we were in this book. And if you would recall, the last time we were in Ephesians, we considered together Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, under the title, The Mystery Revealed. And so today, we want to pick up where we left off. And so if you would, please take a copy of the scriptures and find Ephesians chapter 3. And our primary text this morning is going to be verses 7 through 13. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Mystery Proclaimed. Well, as I stated, this te- uh, this, our text this morning is going to be verses 7 through 13. But for the sake of the context of the passage, let us read together, beginning in verse 1 down through verse number 13. This is God's Word. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And thus the reading of God's word and his people said, Amen. Amen. Now before we look specifically at verses 7 through 13, I want to do a bit of a recap of what we learned the last time we were uh, in Ephesians for two reasons. The first, because it has been uh, several weeks since the last time we were in this book, and so I'm sure you don't remember all the details from the last sermon from Ephesians. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't remember all the details either. So. <laughs> Secondly, because the verses we want to look at today are really part of the larger pericope or passage that, this, um, that, is, that is verses 1 through 13. And so if you're going to understand verses 7 through 13, you have to understand verses 1 through 6. Make sense? So we need to understand the entire context. Also, last time I made the point that in many ways, what we have in the first two chapters of Ephesians is the outworking or the answer to three particular requests 
that Jesus makes in his high priestly prayer, which is recorded for us in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, you're familiar with John 17. That's where Jesus himself prays to the Father, which is really that's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the other prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer really is the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. But in John 17, we have the Lord himself praying to the Father. And in that amazing prayer, he makes many requests, but three particular requests he makes are as such. First, he prays that his people, that is, those who are given to him in the covenant of redemption, that these people would be brought into a personal covenant relationship with God as individuals, thus receiving eternal life. And I think we see the answer to these uh, to this first request answered in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, and also in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Those two passages, of course, are uh, probably the two, two of the greatest passages in all the Scripture that detail for us the doctrine of salvation. These passages teach us how God saves people from their sins. And the consistent theme throughout both of those passages is that He saves people by grace, through faith, in Christ. So sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. And this salvation is of individuals. An individual sinner is saved by grace, applied to that individual, thereby granting that person the gift of personal faith. And then it is that individual who places their faith in the person and the work of Christ and thus are justified as an individual in the sight of God. And so, in part what that means is this. What it means is that I cannot believe for you. And you can't believe for me. And you can't believe for your children. And you can't believe for your lost friend. Or you can't believe for your parents. That each and every person must individually be brought into a personal covenant relationship with the triune God. And that the only way they can be, that, that, that this can happen is through grace, granting them the gift of faith, and believing, and then them having personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John seventeen three, the point is made that eternal life is to know the one true God. That's what that's what it is to have eternal life, to be saved. It is to have a to, to personally know the one true God. And so it's not that I can't know the one true God for you, and you can't know the one true God for me. So each and every person must know the one true God. And so. What we see here in Ephesians 1 and 2 is that Jesus prayed in John 17 that all of his people that were given to him in the covenant of redemption, that they would be brought into this personal covenant relationship with God. And we see this prayer being answered for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. And we see that the way that that prayer is answered is through grace. Second, Jesus prays to his Father that his people, these individuals that have been brought into relationship with God, that they would also be brought into covenant fellowship or relationship with one another. So over and over again in John 17, Jesus prays that his people would be one. His people, both Jew and Gentiles alike, and thus anybody who is united to Christ by faith, are also brought into union with all of God's people to form one body, which is the church. And so if we be individually united to Christ, who is the head of the body, then we must be, by necessity, also brought into union with the body. Does that make sense? If you're in union with the head of the body, then you must, by necessity, be in union with the body itself. Right? right. 
And therefore, a churchless Christianity is an oxymoron. It's like saying jumbo shrimp. It doesn't make sense. You can't say that I'm united to Christ and not to his body or to his church. And so if you are united to Christ, then you must be united to his people. If you love Christ, you must love his people. And so we see the answer to this request worked out for us in Ephesians 1.15, where we see that the Ephesians had love for all the saints. If you notice Ephesians 1.15, Paul's thanksgiving is that what? That the Ephesians had love for all the saints. And so we see there that Jesus' request in John 17 is being answered. And, God, and Paul realizes that and is praising God for that. And, and he's so thankful for that reality. That Jesus prayed that individual sinners would be brought into covenant relationship with God and then those individual sinners would then love all the saints. And we see that answered for us in Ephesians 1.15. Also, we see this answered for us in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11 through 22, where we see that God's plan was to unite Jews and Gentiles together into one new man or one new body. Now, last time I, I, I labored to make the point that what we have in the Jews and Gentiles being brought into one new body is not that you have that you have Jews and you have Gentiles and they're they're both saved, but they're still two distinct peoples and they but they get along together. That they can exist in harmony together. That that's not what's being said. What's being said is that that distinction between Jew and Gentile is completely abolished. And now therefore there is not Jew and Gentile, but there's only one people of God. There's only one body of Christ. And so we see that answered, we see that prayer of Jesus that all of his people would be made one answered for us in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And then the third request that we see that Jesus makes in John 17 is that he himself would be glorified. He asked, he asked the Father that, would you glorify me with the glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the earth? And so he asked over and over again, glorify me, Father. And so he asked that he would be glorified as the instrument by which heaven and earth would be united. And we see this being worked out for us in Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, where Christ is crowned with glory and honor and authority and power, and all things are put under his feet. We see this further worked out in the temple motif of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And in those verses, 19 through 22 of Ephesians 2, we see that the plan or the eternal purpose of God was to come and make his forever dwelling place amongst his unified people. God, as we speak, is building his dwelling place, which is made up of living stones. And therefore, each sinner that is reconciled to God and then joined to the people of God is another stone that God has added to his holy temple which is and will be the dwelling place of God forever. And so in a very real way, we see heaven and earth being united together. And all of this, done, all of this is done with Christ as the centerpiece. And Christ is made head over all things to the church, that is, to this holy temple, which is the dwelling place of God. And so I want you to understand what we've seen there. On the one hand, Christ asked the Father that those who were enemies of God, those, th those who were rebellious sinners, who were alienated from God, that they would be united to God as individuals. He then prays that all of these individuals that have been united to God, 
that all of them will be united together into one body. And then he prays that this one body of people, human beings that have been saved, that God himself would make them his dwelling place. And thus we see heaven and earth being brought together into one. You see that? And at the, at the, the center of all of that is the glory of Christ. In all of this, Christ receives all the glory. God magnifies His Son because it is through the person and work of Christ that all of that is made possible. And so that's what we see being worked out for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. And so the result of reading these two chapters, Ephesians 1 and 2, is to cause great praise in the people of God. In these two chapters, we see the triune God being exalted in the carrying out of God's eternal purposes. We see the wisdom and love of God displayed in the salvation of sinners. We see God's wisdom and love displayed in the breaking down of the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And we see God glorifying His Son by exalting Him above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And therefore putting all things under His feet and making Him head over all things to the church. William Hendrickson writes the following in his commentary on Ephesians 1 and 2 where he says the following. He says, literally everything, things in heaven, things on earth, everything above us, around us, within us, below us, everything spiritual, everything material, has even now been brought under Christ's rule. And that the word he used there is very important. He says, even now has been brought under Christ's rule. So it's not some, this is not a future reality that we're waiting for. Christ is now the head over all things. He has been exalted by God and coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the whole mood of Ephesians 1 and 2 is that of the victory and the authority of Christ. Notice with me once more, if you would, in Ephesians 1, 20-23. I want you to, to get this firmly in your mind. that this is, As this letter is being read to the Ephesian believers, this is what they're hearing. That Christ is king over all. He is exalted above all. So notice verse 20 through 23. It says, When he raised him, that is Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and what did he do? He exalted him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, if you were an Ephesian believer in the first century, and you're hearing this letter being read, what would you be thinking after you read verses 20 through 23? What would be in your mind? Absolute joy? Absolute confidence? Absolute comfort? To know that my Savior is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And if He, this, this one, this mighty one before me, who can be against me? If this mighty one before us as a church, who can be against us? Who can stand against us? And so you see, in, in a real sense, the Ephesian believers, as they were hearing this letter read, they were being brought up to heaven, as it were. But then... We come to chapter 3, verse number 1. And what do we read in verse 1? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. 
And so it is as if, as if the Ephesian believers were being brought up to heaven in chapters 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, they're brought crashing back down to earth. And so there's a great disconnect between chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3, verse 1. If you would notice, look at verse 1. You'll notice that uh, in most of your copies of Scripture, you'll notice there's a dash at the end of chapter 1. So we have verse 1 and then there's a dash. There's a pause. And, and the reason for this is that what we have here is that Paul begins a particular thought in verse 1. And it is as if something he says in this verse causes him to, to pause and to make some clarifying remarks before he moves forward with his original thought. So you understand that, right? So what we have is he's, he's, he begins a thought, thought in verse 1. He says something in that, that verse that's like, I need to clarify that. Because if I don't clarify that, they'll probably misunderstand what's being said. And so he pauses his thought, makes some clarifying comments before he picks his thought back up. Make sense? Now, most commentators view verses 2 through 13 as the clarifying thought or the parenthetical thought. And then verse 14 of chapter 3 as Paul picking up his original thought in verse 1. Now, why would they say that? Well, notice verse 1 and notice verse 14. In verse 1 it says what? For this reason. And in verse 14, what does it say? For this reason. Now, that is the take that most commentators will take. But I take a little different view here. And therefore, I, I, I tend to agree with Sinclair Ferguson who states that he believes that Paul doesn't really pick up his original thought in verse 1 of chapter 3 until we get to verse 1 of chapter number 4. Notice verse 1 of 3 and then verse 1 of 4. In verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we see, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, we read, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And so in both of these verses, we see the phrase, Prisoner, prisoner of Christ or prisoner of the Lord. And so what I believe what we have here is that Paul is making a statement. He, he's been talking about the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, that Christ is ruling and reigning over all things, that all things are under his feet. Then he says that he's a prisoner. And this is jarring to the Ephesian readers. And so then what he does, he, he, goes, he has to explain what he means by that. We notice that in verse 13. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Why, why does he make that statement? He says what? So that you do not lose heart. So he knows what he said in verse 1, if not understood correctly, would cause the Ephesian believers to do what? To lose heart. Okay? And so that he makes his clarifying comments in verses 2 through 13. And then after he's made those clarifying comments, it causes him to just, just burst forth in, in, in prayer, asking that, that the Ephesian believers would be, made, would be able, would be given strength and grace to comprehend the glory of what he just said in verses 2 through 13. And then after all of that, throughout the entirety of chapter 3, then we come back to chapter 4, verse 1, and he continues his thought. So he said, I'm a prisoner. I've got to explain that. He explains it. Then we come back to chapter 4. He, he states again, I'm a prisoner. Then he goes forward with his original thought. Further, we see that the natural link, the natural flow of, of, of his thought really goes from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 4. If you would, notice the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians. 
Notice verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have Paul describing the the temple motif that God has called us out of darkness into light and he has called us into fellowship with himself and fellowship with one another and that he is building his people together to be his dwelling place by the Spirit. So that's the end of chapter 2. And then when we get to chapter 4, we see that it is at It is as if Paul says, in light of this glorious calling and privilege of being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the temple or dwelling place of God, then we should endeavor to walk worthy of this calling and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what it says in Ephesians 4, verses 1. You see that. So he's talking about the glory of being united to the church, being part of the church, being part of the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, in light of that, walk worthy of that calling and be eager to maintain this unity that has been worked out for us in chapter 2. And so in a very real way, the entirety of chapter 3 is really a a parenthetical thought. So you have his his line of thoughts going chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4. Chapter 3 is a a parenthesis in that. Okay? And so I believe the word that caused Paul to digress at the beginning of chapter 3 and then pick up his thought again in chapter 4 is, of course, the word prisoner. Now, why would this word prisoner cause Paul to stop and make some clarifying statements before proceeding? We've already made note that the transition from chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 3 is a jarring transition. It is a transition that doesn't make sense when when you first read it. As the, Ephesian, as the Ephesians read this letter or were having this letter read to them and they arrived at chapter 3, it may have caused them to make some conclusions that would have been fatal to their faith and their confidence in Christ. You can imagine the Ephesian reader saying the following when they, when they read chapter 3, verse 1, to have this sort of reaction. They would say, If Paul be an apostle of King Jesus if Paul really is an ambassador of the Lord, and the Lord has all authority in heaven and on earth, then what does Paul mean that he's a prisoner? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to fit with what we have just seen in chapters 1 and 2. And so Paul feels like this calls for explanation, and this is seen, of course, in the conclusion to his explanation in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And so so Paul realizes that the fact that he is a prisoner could cause his readers to struggle over the truths that he proclaimed in chapters 1 and 2 and thus lose heart. And so the question that Paul seeks to address is this. How does the Messiah reign? We we see in chapter 1 and 2 that the Messiah reigns. But how does the Messiah reign if his people suffer at the hands of a conquered world? This doesn't make sense, does it? If, he, if he's the ruler of all, all the world, he's, he, is, he is the ruler, he's the king, and, and the world, he's conquered the world, he is king, then why do his people suffer at the hands of this conquered world? And so Paul's digression in verses 2 through 12 is his answer 
to this great and perplexing question. You see, the Apostle Paul is seeking to protect the Ephesian believers from making a fatal conclusion regarding his imprisonment. And that fatal conclusion would be as followed as described by S.M. Ball. He states that perhaps the Ephesian reader may conclude that Christ's exaltation to cosmic rule described so vividly for us in Ephesians 1 and 2 is really a shattered failure. Since he cannot even protect Paul, his apostle, from custody and various other afflictions. Now, do you understand why they would have that conclusion? If, if Christ is king over all, he has cosmic authority, he has rule over all things, and, and the Ephesian believers are reading that, and then they notice that Paul, their beloved Paul, is in prison, they may begin to think, well, maybe Christ doesn't have cosmic rule. Maybe Christ really isn't exalted as king over all. Maybe his, his exaltation to, to being ruler over all things is, is a shattered failure. Maybe I shouldn't believe in this Christ after all. You see that? And so what Paul is doing in this chapter is he's seeking to protect the Ephesian believers from making that fatal conclusion. Because if that's your conclusion to the struggles and the hardships of life, then you're lost. You see that? Well, this leads us to an important statement that Paul makes in verse 1 concerning his imprisonment. He states that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, this statement is of utmost importance in reminding the Ephesian believers that although he is imprisoned by the Romans, he's in Roman custody, and, and this was brought on by the Jews, but that ultimately Christ is reigning and ruling over all things. And so, in reality, this imprisonment is not an indication of Christ's cosmic rule being a shattered failure, but that even this seeming failure is evidence of Christ's absolute authority over all things and that he uses what looks like a setback to our eyes for the good of his church and to move history towards its intended purposes. And so Paul is a prisoner of Rome by the appointment of Christ Jesus. He then goes on to say that his imprisonment is on behalf of you Gentiles. And so Christ is sovereign. This imprisonment of Paul didn't catch Christ by surprise. In fact, Christ appointed it. Christ is the one who appointed that Paul, you will go to prison. Remember Paul's calling on the road to Damascus. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So this was at the appointment of Christ. And further, it was on behalf of the Gentiles. It was for the good of the Gentiles. And so we see here that truly Christ works all things together for the good of those that love him. Everything that happens in this life, the sovereign Christ is working all of that together for the good of his people and for the glory of his own name. Well, last time we read the account of when Paul was in prison in the book of Acts. And from that account, we clearly see that Paul was literally in prison for what reason? Remember we read in Acts I think it's 22 or 23, I didn't write it down. But in Acts, we read that Paul was arrested for what reason? Because he was accused of doing what? Of bringing Trophimus, the Ephesian, remember he's writing to the Ephesians, he was arrested, why? Because he brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple. Now, why would that be such a crime? Well, because they believe that Gentiles shouldn't be in the temple. But what, what did Paul tell us in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22? That there is no Jew and Gentile distinction. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. 
members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so all Paul was doing was acting on what is true. He's acting on what he, what he has preached, that the Gentiles are, should be able to enter in with the Jews because they are one body now. There is no Jew and Gentile distinction. And so because Paul was, was acting on that truth, he was thrown into prison. And so it was on behalf of the Gentiles. It was on behalf of Trophimus the Ephesian that Paul was being persecuted by the Jews and the Romans. But this, of course, was according to the divine plan and wisdom of Christ who uses Paul's imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel message that all who will trust in Christ shall be saved. Remember in Philippians, what does Paul say about his imprisonment? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has really served to do what? To advance the gospel. So Christ was behind this imprisonment. And he did it for Paul's good and for the good of his church. And so it is as if Paul was reassuring the Ephesian believers that his imprisonment is not outside the sovereign rule of Christ and is in fact being used to spread the mystery of Christ to the whole known world at the time. And thus his suffering is ultimately for the glory of Christ's elect people, both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, last time we were in Ephesians 3, we focused on verses 2 through 6, where we looked specifically at the mystery of Christ that has been revealed. And we saw that the mystery was specifically this, in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, why would that be a great encouragement to the Ephesians as they read this? Why is that such good news for the Ephesians? Well, because simply they are they're Gentiles. And so Paul is teaching them that God's eternal purpose was for the Jews and the Gentiles to not be two separate peoples, but one people. And so the eternal purpose of God can be summarized as such. For all who are united to Christ by faith, whether they be Jew or Gentile, they all, each and every one of them, enter into covenant relationship with God, covenant relationship with all the people of God, and that as a result of this, they are welcomed into the family of God and thus are being made into the very dwelling place of God, and this to the praise and the glory of the resurrected and enthroned Christ. Well, all of this leads to our passage today. And so in verse 1 through 6 of Ephesians 3, we saw the mystery revealed, and in verses 7 through 13, we see the mystery proclaimed. So if you would notice with me in verse number 7. He says of this gospel, of this, of this mystery of Christ, of this message about who Christ is, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. And so here we have a clear transition from verses 2 through 6. And Paul stated in those verses that the mystery had been revealed to him by revelation. But this mystery was not revealed to Paul so that he can just know about it himself. So verses 2 through 6, Paul, this, this mystery, this message about who Christ is and what he came to do, was revealed to Paul by revelation. But it wasn't that Paul was to receive this revelation and just have it for himself. Not only has the grace of God revealed to him the mystery, but the grace of God has made Paul a minister of this mystery. And so we at EBC believe that a minister should be educated. We believe that we believe in the value of a solid theological training. But we must never forget that a minister is made 
by the grace of God. It is the Lord of the harvest that sends laborers into the field. And Paul is aware of this. Paul repeatedly reminds us here that he did not assume the office of apostle on his own, but rather he was appointed by God's grace for this work. Now, I would pause here and remind all of you that while in a specific way, what Paul is referring to here is those who, who are called to be ministers of the gospel, those who are called to be preachers of the gospel. In other words, those who are called to hold office, hold the office of a minister. So in a particular way, he's talking about that, but we must not forget that Paul will later say in verse 10 that it is through the church and not just the office holders that the mystery of Christ is to be made known. Also, just one chapter over in Ephesians 4, we read that the saints are to be equipped for what? The work of the ministry. And so there is a sense in which each and every saint has been made a minister of the gospel by the grace of God. And so we all have a role to play in the proclamation of the mystery, and we are given that role by God's grace. Now, I've mentioned this here before, but I will... Uh, once again, use my own conversion experience as an illustration. How was the mystery of Christ that I can be included into the family of God by virtue of faith in Christ made known to me? So how was this mystery proclaimed to me? How, how did I become aware of this mystery? Well, someone invited me to church. And then when I got there, someone else gave me a Bible. And then another person gave me a free grace broadcast to read on the subject of Christ our substitute. Another person encouraged me to read the book of Mark. Another person preached the gospel to me from the pulpit. Another person taught Bible study. Others prayed for me without me knowing about it. Others prayed that the Lord would save me while I was sitting, sitting there. Amen. And many, many, many showed me hospitality and made me feel welcome. Others taught me concerning the fencing of the Lord's table. And others answered my questions that I was struggling with. And God and Christ use all of this. And so he uses the whole church to evangelize. He used the whole church. He used all of Emmanuel Baptist Church to evangelize me and bring me to a saving relationship with his son. And so, brothers and sisters, you have been included in the, in the greatest enterprise there is. You have been included in ensuring that the mystery will be proclaimed to this generation. And your inclusion in this is by the grace of God. You didn't, you didn't earn this. Your inclusion into this great privilege is by the grace of God. Paul goes on to mention how this grace was given to him by the working of God's power. And so if the message of the gospel is to be proclaimed effectually, we are in need of the power of the Holy Spirit. Pastor John made that, made that very clear to us earlier when we were uh, in our scripture reading. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, uh, Ian Murray wrote that the greatest problem facing the pulpit in Reformed churches in our day is not a lack of theological education, but rather that we don't know how to pray down the power of the Holy Spirit. Ministers are made ministers by the grace of God and they must minister in reliance upon the grace of God. Walter Chantry writes, preachers are fenced into only one hope of success. <clears throat> Careful preparation and energetic delivery of precise theology can do nothing in themselves. But if God attends biblical messages, the dead will rise. And so that is our hope. 
as we proclaim the mystery of Christ, we do so in complete reliance upon God to grant life and light to dead sinners who are walking in darkness. Let's notice verse number 8. It says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, Paul cannot get away from his amazement that he has been given this grace of God to preach the gospel. He oftentimes mentions that he is the least of all the saints. He mentions it here, and he mentions it in other places. Now this may sound like Paul is being overly dramatic, but that's not the case, brothers and sisters. Paul is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is dead serious when he says that he is the least of all the saints and that he is the chief of sinners. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? In fact, the worst sinner there is is the sinner that you know the best. And which sinner do you know best? Yourself. And so in that sense, truly we can all say that we are the least of all the saints. And so one of the most instructive things that Paul does throughout his ministry is to over and over and over again marvel at the grace of God shown to him in his salvation. And so we must firmly establish it in our minds and hearts that we have been saved by grace. This must be the great truth that captivates our minds and grips our hearts. Apart from the grace of God, we would live out our days on this earth in rebellion to God and we would die and we would go to hell. And justly so. So the question is, are you amazed at the grace of God that saved you? Those of you who have walked with Christ for all these years, do you realize that it is only by the grace of God that you are not now on your way to hell? And so is the sound of amazing grace still sweet to your ears? Now, the secret to living a godly life is really no secret at all. It's not learning some secret knowledge or hearing the right motivational speaker or arriving at some extraordinary level of personal discipline. That's not the secret to living a godly life. The secret to living a godly life is simply this. It is to be gripped by the gospel of God's saving grace in your life. That's the secret. Now, I know a lot of y'all were looking at the screen when we first started, so uh, that image there is there for a reason. I want to give an illustration of what this looks like. So if you notice on this left side here, where the little cross is at, okay, the, the top circle is God, and the bottom circle is you. And what happens when you get saved, when, when a sinner is converted, what happens is this. They realize that they fall short of the glory of God. They fall, fall short of the standard of God's holiness. And they realize there's nothing they can do. There's no matter of works. There's no matter of prayers. There's no matter of discipline. There's nothing they can do at all to span that gap. There's nothing that can cause them to be reconciled to God in and of their own strength. The only thing that can span that gap is what? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that can reconcile us to God is what Christ has done in the gospel. But what happens if you are a Christian in progressive sanctification, what happens is this. Over time, as you learn more and more about who God is, your view of the holiness and the grandeur and the the majesty of God increases. You see that? 
And as it increases, you have a higher and higher view of who God is. But also, the longer you're a Christian, you become less and less and less in your own eyes. You, you thought you were a sinner when you first got converted. But the reality is, God has called you into His kingdom to struggle with the corruptions of your own heart. And you know that. If you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that your heart is, is far more wicked than you ever thought it was to begin with. And every time you have victory over one sin, three more pop up, right? And so you have this constant battle with your own sin. And so over time, you become more and more and more aware of how sinful you really are. And what happens is that gap between you and God becomes greater and greater and greater in your own eyes. You become less in your own eyes and He becomes greater. And what you begin to realize as you grow in maturity is that you needed the gospel all the, more than you ever realized. And so what happens is if you're, if you're growing as a Christian, Christ becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. And so the measure of are you growing as a Christian, are you maturing as a Christian, how amazed are you, are you at the gospel? How amazed are you at what Christ has done for you? If, if the cross is becoming smaller in your life, that's not a good sign, is it? You're not growing. But if you're growing, you're growing in knowledge of who God is, who you are, and how much you really need the gospel. Now we go to verse number 9. Here we read, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Well, back in verses 1 through 6, we clearly saw that the mystery that had been revealed to Paul was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The last time we were in this chapter, we saw that the mystery wasn't so much that Gentiles would be included in. The Old Testament is very clear that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. you understand what I said there? I went to a lot of detail last time. The Old Testament, the, 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 the fact that Gentiles are brought in is not a mystery. That's not the mystery. The, the Old Testament is full of prophecies about the Gentiles being brought in. That through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his, through his offspring. So it was never a, a mystery that the Gentiles would be included in. The mystery is this, that they're not included in as a subpar group. You see that? So it's not that the Gen you have Jews, Jews are really the special people of God, and the Gentiles are just brought in as sort of a subgroup that they get to enjoy some of these blessings, but they're not really the same as the Jews. But that's what the Jews thought, right? That's what many of the early Jewish Christians thought. But the mystery was this, that the Gentiles are brought in not as a subgroup or a separate group, but they're, they're grafted in, and they become part of the one body of Christ, the one covenant people of God. And so that's the mystery that we see here. So in other words, the mystery is this, that everyone, no matter who you are, whether you be Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, white or black, born to Christian parents or born to pagan parents, you are invited to come to Christ, and in so doing, you will receive the full inheritance as a son or daughter of God. And this is something that we take for granted today, perhaps. But this is an absolutely breathtaking revelation to Paul and to first century believers. And this was a message worth proclaiming to all the nations. Everyone needed to hear this, and Paul wanted everybody to hear it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have that same love for people? Do we believe that this is a message that everyone needs to hear? Now we come to verse number 10. 
Now this is one of the, what some think is one of the more difficult verses in the passage. So let's read verse 10. It says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, the difficulty of this verse lies in the meaning of the term heavenly places. If you would notice with me throughout the book of Ephesians, notice first in Ephesians 1, verse 3. What do we see there? It says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. Notice verse 20 of chapter 1. What does it say here? That Christ Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God where? In the heavenly places. Notice chapter 2, verse 6. It says that when we are saved, we are also raised up. Just as Christ was raised up and seated in the heavenly places, it says that we, when we're saved, we're raised up and where are we seated? In the heavenly places. Now, of course, we see in verse, or chapter 3, verse 10, we see this same phrase again. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then we see over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, of course, what we see here is in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 6, it's clearly referring to heavenly places in the positive sense, right? It's referring to the presence of God Himself. That's very clear from reading what the word heavenly places means in those particular verses. But when we get to chapter 6, verse 12, it's very clear that what heavenly places means there is not the same necessarily as what it means in those other three passages, is it? Here we have heavenly places being referred to as as the spiritual realm of darkness. You see that? And so because you have those different usages of the word heavenly places, that causes it to be difficult to understand what exactly is being meant in chapter 3, verse 10, because it uses that phrase, heavenly places. And so is it meaning, in the positive sense, in, in the very presence of God himself, or is it meaning something along the lines of speaking about the spiritual realm of darkness? Well, let's look at that. So, commentators have come to three different possibilities for this. Uh, Of course, uh, some will say that it's referring to satanic and demonic spiritual forces. Others say that it's referring to the heavenly host, namely the angelic host in the presence of God. So, that's, that's one view that it's the angelic host, that, this, that the heavenly places is speaking about the, the angels in heaven. That this, this mystery has been proclaimed and made known, the wisdom of God has been made known to the angelic host in heaven. Others will say that this, this, um, um, this, this mystery, this, this wisdom of God has been made known to the demonic forces. Okay, And then others take the position that, well, in this, in this particular case, the wisdom of God is made known to both the angelic host in heaven and to the demonic forces. So those are your three particular main views. And after thinking through the context of Ephesians 3, the personal view that I landed on was option number three. That the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places in Ephesians 3.10 
is referring to the totality of the spiritual realm, both angels and demons alike. In 1 Peter 1.12, we see that the full revelation of the message of the gospel, a.k.a. the mystery hidden in God for ages, is that which the angels longed to look at. We read that in 1 Peter 1. So the angels marvel at the wisdom of God and the salvation of man. And so, of course, the proclamation of the gospel is a revelation of the manifold wisdom of God to the angelic host. You see that? When the church goes forward preaching the gospel message, the angels long to look at that. And when they see the gospel message being proclaimed, it is amazing to them, and they praise God for His wisdom in the gospel. Now, think of that. Do you realize that every single week we do that? Think of the doxology. What do we say in the doxology? We tell angels to do something, right? We tell them to praise God. That all the heavenly hosts above, we, pray, we, we, we tell them in song, you should praise God. And so we as a church are, are making the manifold wisdom of God known to the angelic host. Now that, that's an amazing thought to think of. That what we do as a church, the angels look upon that. And they are amazed at what happens in the church. They are amazed at the manifold wisdom of God being worked out through the ministry of local churches. And so we, hear, we see here something of the special place that the church has in the eternal purposes of God. We're familiar with 1 Timothy 3.15 which states that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And then in verse 16 of that chapter we read, that that truth is, of course, the gospel message concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means is, is this, church. We are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We have the message of God concerning His Son. We have that message. It's been given to us. And we are to proclaim it. And as we proclaim it, not only are we proclaiming it to men, we are proclaiming this message to angelic hosts in heaven. But we must not forget that not only do we as a church proclaim the mystery of Christ to men and to a angelic host in heaven, we also proclaim the gospel to our spiritual enemies. Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what is our weapon in that warfare Warfare with spiritual forces, the evil spiritual forces? What is, our, what is the weapon of our warfare? Is it not the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. This message about who Christ is and what He came to do. The gospel message is the sword of, our, the, sword of the Spirit. It is our weapon in this warfare against spiritual evil forces. If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 16. Now, in Matthew 16, we have Jesus asking the most important question that can be asked. He asks His disciples what? Well, in verse 15 we see, He asks, But who do you 
say that I am? And of course, Peter answers by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 18 of Matthew 16, we see something remarkable. He then tells Peter that it is upon this rock that Christ will build His church. And what is the rock? It's this confession, it's this message about who Christ is and what He came to do. That Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it is the gospel message that will become the very rock on which the church is built. And then Jesus goes on to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now what is the it in verse 18 in this verse? Is it the church or is it the rock? Well, it seems to me that the it being referred to is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It is the gospel message. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And so when we as a church proclaim the gospel message concerning who Christ is and what He has done, there is nothing that Satan or his demons can do to stop Christ from kicking down the gates of hell, as it were, and rescuing His elect people from the domain of darkness. Brothers and sisters, there are elect people of God that are presently under the dominion of Satan. There are elect people who are currently subjects of the kingdom of darkness. But as we go forth proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the mystery, there are no gates that will stop Christ from getting His inheritance. He was given a people from before the very foundation of the earth in the eternal covenant of redemption, and Christ will have every single one that was given to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, what a, what, what a message we have to proclaim. And what a, great, what a great privilege we have. It is through us, the church, that this manifold wisdom of God is made known to Satan and his demons. Well, this, of course, leads us directly to verse 11, which says, This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the eternal purpose is, of course, the reality that Christ has a people given to him in the covenant of redemption from before the very foundation of the world, and he will save them through the very proclamation of the gospel. As the church goes forth proclaiming the gospel, this is how God realizes His eternal purposes through Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse 12. And what a great encouragement and blessing this, ver this verse is to the hearts of believers who were struggling to process the reality that Paul the Apostle of Christ was in prison. Verse 12 reads, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Well, if you would remember at the beginning of our sermon, we saw that Paul labored in chapters 1 and 2 to proclaim the reality that Christ was and has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That He has been coordinated, He has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And that all things have been put under His feet and He has been given His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And the purpose of this was to set forth the reality that Christ is king over all. 
And so Paul here in verse 12 is bringing the Ephesians back to that reality and consequently bringing us back to that reality by reminding us how blessed we truly are. So think about what verse 12 is saying to you, believer. If you are a Christian and thus are united to Christ, then you can have great boldness because you have free access into the very presence of the thrice holy God. And you can have access with confidence through faith in Christ. And so the God who dwells in unapproachable light is the God to whom we can confidently enter into His presence because of our union with Christ. I want you all to hear me now on this. We know that none of us are worthy in and of ourselves to be in God's presence. We fall short of the glory of God. And this is the glory of the mystery that has been revealed to us by proclamation. That if you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, then God Himself is well pleased with you. And He invites you into His presence. He delights in your presence. He desires to be in your presence. And so we have full confidence, full access to enter into His presence at any time, all the time. This is the very God in whose presence we are dwelling in at this very moment. And so would you not, by faith, go to Him, even now, praising Him, even now go to Him and receive for Him the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus? You have that access. So believer, do that. Go to God even now. And now a word to those in here who may be strangers to God. God says that whosoever should believe upon His Son should not perish but have everlasting life. And you've heard the mystery proclaimed to you today. Do not harden your hearts. Go to Christ. God promises if you believe upon Him, you will be saved. So go to Him. He will receive you. But also the opposite of that verse is this. It says if you believe in Christ, you will not perish. But if you do not believe in Christ, what will happen? You will perish. So do not be foolish. Go to Christ. He will save you. And you will not perish. So now we come to the last verse in this section, which is Paul's conclusion to what he labored to teach in verses 2 through 12. Verse 13 says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is your glory. Remember the Ephesians would have been tempted to lose heart after hearing the glories of the exalted and victorious Christ. And Ephesians 1 and 2, to only then be shocked at the news that Paul, the beloved apostle of Christ, was in prison. Well, we too can easily lose heart in this life if we lose sight of that reality. You see, we're not very good oftentimes at seeing the big picture. That's not, that's not our forte. We lose sight of who we are and whose we are. Remember Pastor Tim last week. What did he remind us over and over again? Remember who you are and whose you are. Well, that's what we lose sight of so often. There will come times in your life that can make you question whether or not Christ really is ruling and reigning. 
This was a consistent struggle throughout the Psalms, was it not? Over and over again, the psalmist would struggle. God, if you are ruling, if you are in charge, then why are these bad things happening? Why does it seem that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Sometimes it seems as if we work and work to fight against a wicked culture. And despite our best efforts, it seems like like our culture is becoming more and more godless. We live in a wicked generation. And not only a wicked generation, but a generation that has quite frankly frankly lost its grip on reality. We've all seen that. Those who who are lost in darkness... Sin has sin, and don't take this the wrong way. But sin makes you stupid. It's called the noetic effects of sin. Sin makes us lose our grip with reality. Sin is, in its very essence, sin is irrational. That's what sin is. So those who are lost in the grip of sin, lost under the domain of darkness, they do lose their grip on reality. The things that they they, they say, the things that they push, don't make sense. And we see that where this doesn't make sense. And so we see the dreadful effects of sin everywhere we look. But despite all of that, do not lose heart. Paul suffered that through his suffering the gospel might advance. And so brothers and sisters, be reminded of this. Christ is king. He is ruling and he is reigning. And through the church, the mystery hidden for ages in God is being proclaimed. And this mystery is the power of God and the salvation. And there is nothing the the forces of darkness can do to stop Christ from saving and sanctifying His people. We have that great confidence, brothers and sisters. Yes, we live in a wicked generation. Yes, we live in a culture that, that is messed up. There is nothing that the spiritual forces of darkness can do to stop Christ from getting His man. And so all we have to do is proclaim the message. Be faithful to proclaiming the message. Be faithful to sacrificially loving others and be faithful to intercessory prayer. That's the weapons of our warfare. And Christ will get His people. Every single one of them. For brothers and sisters, let us pray. And then after I pray, let us sing praises to our God who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we sang that hymn earlier, why was I made a guest? Why were we brought in when thousands of others make a wretched choice? Lord, it is because you have made a covenant promise from before the very foundation of the earth. You have given us to your Son, and in due time, the mystery, the message about who he is was proclaimed to us and you brought forth you brought us forth from death you raised us up and you seated us in the heavenly places and so father we are thankful for our salvation by grace forgive us for taking this for granted forgiving us forgive us for losing sight of the big picture and father i pray that you would give us great confidence to to move forward knowing that you are on our side and that you have given us this great privilege of proclaiming the mystery about who Christ is. And we know that through this message that you will save all of your people.
Thank you, Father, for this great reality. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please stand and let's sing together hymn number 335, Who is on the Lord's Side?